All right. Um, hey, uh, I want to get preempt something here that I didn't in the first service, and I feel horrible because uh, I um, didn't think think of it until it was too late. But um, we're going to talk about First Thessalonians chapter four, and one of the one of the um, points is to avoid sexual immorality. And so, as a youth pastor, I'm accustomed to giving many love, sex, and dating messages to kids. And so I'm not going to be graphic at all here, um, but I might throw out some terms that could be a little painful uh, to those who have experienced them, but also uh, to those who are maybe in second, third, and fourth grade, or third, fourth, and fifth grade. If you, if you are a parent and you don't want um, kids exposed to a couple terms, then, um, then you, you might, I wouldn't be offended if you get up and leave um, uh, during the sermon during the sermon or if if they want to help out down the hall as well. Uh, So just know that every parent is different in the way they want to raise their kids. Um, So we're going to talk about 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. Um, And there was this deacon who was kind of full of himself, unlike any deacons here. Um, And they were teaching a boys' Sunday school class. And uh, they're trying to teach, uh, they're trying to teach, um, how to live the Christian life. And he worked really hard at stressing the importance of living the Christian life. And then kind of er- he arrogantly asked the kids, so like kids, um, tell me, uh, why do people call me a Christian, for example? And then there was an awkward silence until one kid said, well, maybe because they don't know you. <laughs> the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians stressing the importance of continuing to live and grow as the Christian life as followers of Christ. And he starts out in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Well, during the short time that the Apostle Paul was in Thessalonica, he taught the new believers how to, about Jesus and how to receive Jesus, and then what, what Jesus would expect of you as a follower of Christ. And so the first step of the salvation was, of course, justification, which means just as if I'd never sinned. When we receive Christ, he forgives our sins, he, he washes away our sin, and we stand before him God as righteous because of the Christ's blood of forgiveness. So we've been justified, been saved and forgiven. Um, and then the, but, the, but now we have to learn how to live. Paul says, you've been justified, you're saved, but now you have to learn how to live into your justification towards spiritual maturity. And so the next word is sanctification, which means simply to become more and more like Jesus, to become holy, set apart in service for Jesus. And then one day we'll stand before God in person and we will then be glorified, we'll be made perfect, we'll be perfected. And the the final step of our salvation is our glorification in God's presence. But many receive their justification, but they never learn how to grow into their sanctification. Or many other people they learn how to live right, and they're all excited about their new faith in Christ. And I've known many who their first love, they're on fire, but then it fizzles out. 
And then, yeah, they're still saved, but they don't live into their sanctification. Um, They don't continue to live their daily lives for Christ. Um, And so they become lukewarm or or complacent in their faith. It's sort of like a fitness junkie who wants to, well, he becomes a fitness junkie for his New Year's resolution, and he goes to Genesis Health Club or the YMCA every day, you know, or three or four times a week, and they exercise, he or she exercise and exercise, and it's great for a few weeks, and then week four or the second month, they stop going to the gym, and, and they cease being a fitness junkie, and they turn back into a sugar junkie, and their muscles begin to atrophy, and, uh, and they turn flabby, spiritually speaking. And the same goes for us spiritually. You know, uh, we can do the same. Now we ask, Paul says, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Do what? Continue to grow in your sanctification toward holiness. Well, how did Paul encourage his believers, these new believers in Thessalonica, to grow into their sanctification more and more? Here's a three-point Things three-point outline in these first 13 verses. He said these three things in their context, avoid sexual immorality. Secondly, love each other more and more. And then thirdly, mind your own business and work hard. Again, I'm going to focus on the first point more than the other two today. So just a heads up. Avoid sexual immorality. We all strive for purity in our lives. We love purity. For example, We want to drink pure water. We want to eat pure milk chocolate. We want to enjoy pure honey on our cereal. We we would rather put pure gas without any additives into our car. We like to use pure soap like ivory so we don't itch afterwards. We bet on purebred horses if you're into that world. You uh, bet on pure, the pure athletes on your team. You invest in pure gold and pure silver. You want to breathe pure air and so you get these machines in your house. Uh, you want to long for the pure truth. You respect those who are pure geniuses. Um, we want to long for pure strength when we exercise or pure beauty. And it, last but not least, and most importantly, we want pure disco, right? <laughs> Who, whoever bought the pure disco CD? Oh, man. If you didn't, you are... You, you, all right. We're not so concerned, though, when it comes to purity of mind and heart. We aren't. Um, just watch the news and watch what we watch. Or um, Not long ago, it used, used to be a virtue, even in my lifetime, when sexual purity in mind and practice was a thing, but no longer. In fact, many view it as an oddity. For example, when I was reading an article on The Bachelor, or sometimes when I watched it when my wife wasn't home and she didn't know, at one time there was this bachelor um, on the TV show who professed that he was going to remain sexually pure, virgin, until his wedding night. And then all of America, there's a collective disbelief, like cyber disbelief. What? Oh my gosh, this guy's an oddball. What, he, what is he doing on here? And so he became an oddity instead of respected, like in the day, you know, when I was a kid. Well, Paul was not interested in in conforming to that kind of culture 
And that attitude, like uh, what became prominent during the 1960s uh, of, in our you know, sexual revolution, uh, instead Paul laid out his plan for all of his creation when it comes to this matter in verse 3. He said, God's will for you is that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And this sexual immorality is porneia. It covers sexual activity outside the boundaries of marriage. So, for example, if you put a circle up on the screen and you put a couple in the middle, married couple, that's God's plan, pure and simple. Anything outside of that circle is not God's intention and it falls in under porneia or sexual immorality. Sounds backwards in our culture. Sounds old-fashioned. Sounds irrelevant. Sounds whatever. Um, certainly revolutionary. But God's design for marriage was uh, a man and woman make a sacred promise to each other. They love each other and remain committed to each other um, as long as they both shall live. And then intimacy within that marriage is a great gift from God, but it was given with the reservation of the boundaries that he designed and created marriage for, the marriage commitment. Outside the boundary, then uh, this activity is defined as porneia, and it can lead to a whole lot of destruction. And you know what it includes, premarital activity, extramarital activity, same-sex activity, uh, abuse. But the porneia also has to deal with pornography, from where we get that word. Uh, Matthew 5.28, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust in their heart has already committed adultery. We are all guilty, men and women alike. We all fall short of committing adultery in our hearts, in our minds. And again, this teaching would have seemed so shocking and so radical to the, in this Greco-Roman world of Thessalonica where everything goes, everything and anything goes. Chastity was unheard of and unknown in that culture. Porneia was even practiced during their times of worship to the host of gods that they worshipped in that Greek world. Um, in fact, there were stories of these gods that had their sexual exploits. Um, and so they were revered and, and they were, um, it's, temple worship included this type of activity. This is how graphic it'll get, by the way, in case you're wondering. I'm not going to get any more graphic than this. Um, but if sex is such a great gift from God, then why all the constraints in the Bible? And that's what, you know, we're, we're seen as prudes and out of touch in the church today. Why all the constraints? After all, these bodies belong to us, and we can do with them as we please. Well, no, we can't, because we belong to God, right? Paul says in Corinth, to the Corinthians, by the way, he was writing from Corinth to the Thessalonians, but later on he would write to the Corinthians, and he said to them, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Did you know that? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. But still, you know, God's circle is too constraining. It's too small. It seems like a list of rules and regulations. It seems like legalism, not liberty. I want to experience freedom in life and joy and have fun, you know. Well, think about God's law or his rules or his commands like this. 
Lynn and I just drove back from Chicago. By the way, we drove to Chicago on Monday when it was ice, and we saw cars and ditches and everywhere. So like 58 hours later, we made it to Chicago type of thing. But we drove back, and um, as we were driving back, we passed a lot of entrances and, and, uh, and exits on the heway, or freeway, heway, freeway um, off-ramps. said, do not enter, do not enter. And so obviously we got really, really upset. Who are they to tell us what we can and can't do? This is my car. I can drive the way I want to. And if I want to enter into the do not enter, I can if I want to. Well, that'd be foolish. Those who put the signs there were out to protect us. They weren't out to restrict our freedoms. They wanted to keep us safe. And when God says um, that what sex is reserved for, he's only trying to help us. He's not trying to hurt us and restrain us, constrain us. He's allowing us to get the full enjoyment out of it rather than the headaches and the pain and the illnesses that come from its misuse. Jesus came to set us free from the consequences. William Barclay said it this way, Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we want. It means being free to do as we ought. We're set free from ourselves and our addictions when we live for God. So what are some of the consequences that Paul addresses in the next verses in order to protect us from living outside the boundaries? He said, if we live outside the boundaries of his plan, then we will have a loss of the Spirit's control in our lives. And we read into this in verse 4 that each one of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. In other words, we need to learn to control our bodies. I wish I could say, abracadabra, sprinkle pixie dust on myself, and now I will no longer lust, and I'll be temptation-free. But our, our sexual natures are strong, and the Bible says, and the Bible, the culture says, just give in to your urges. If it feels right, go for it. It's unnatural. In fact, it's even harmful to deny your urges. And that's what we learn from our culture. That's what our kids are learning in culture as well. We can either learn to control our urges and our bodies, or we could submit to the Spirit's control in us. Or our bodies will control us. When we give in to our urges and instincts outside of God's boundaries, then it can often lead to a lot of unhealthy things like STDs or ST, a transmitted um, infections, can lead to obviously unplanned pregnancies and abortion, infertility through the disease, even death. And these are not ever God's intentions for couples, ever. Um, it can lead to depression. Study and Heritage Foundation linked teenage activity uh, with depression and suicide. The findings were true for, uh, especially for young girls. 25% of those who are active uh, say that they are depressed all the time or most of the time. And here are kids thinking, man, I'm old enough to be active now, and I'm going to have fun, and I'm going to go to the school dance, and afterwards, you know, on and on, right? But then it leads to depression, most of the time or all the time for many, and even suicide. Uh, sexual addictions to pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's been around for decades. Estimated that 97 billion 
industry globally per year, and the United States generates between 12 and 14 billion in annual revenue, and it only continues to grow. It's a big deal. It's proven to destroy intimacy in marriage, though, and lead to rampant, rampant, rampant sexual abuse. Like, the next is hurting others in verse 6. And that, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Like in adultery or incest or whatever, you know. Robert Morris wrote, adultery is an obvious violation of the rights of another. Right, okay, we know that. But promiscuity before marriage represents the robbing of the other of virginity which ought to be brought into marriage. The future partner of such a one has been defrauded. It goes with us into our marriages. Um, another consequence is the loss of God's favor. Not the loss of God's presence, because God will never leave us or forsake us if we belong to him, but it'll, we'll lose his favor, his, his presence, if you will. Not his presence, but his... Um, we won't lose his... Um, what's the word? We'll lose his fellowship, but we won't lose the relationship, you know? And we can be in relationship with someone. You know, my dad is always my dad. His blood runs through my veins. But I can have a broken relationship, which means broken fellowship. But he will always be my dad as long as I live. And, and, you know, but our fellowship can be broken. And so the Lord's favor in verse 6, the Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. About a month ago, I talked on God's wrath from Scripture and God's punishment. And this side of heaven, I think this is how God typically reveals his wrath and punishment. He doesn't unleash lightning bolts on us and cause us undue uh, uh, tragedy. Instead, he just withholds his blessing. And he turns us over to our sinful ways. That's what he does. And we're told that in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. If that's what you want to do, I'm going to give you over to that and you will reap what you sow. As Job put it, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So a whole lot of people are experiencing all these consequences that are destructive because they want to live continually outside of God's plan for them. Be assured, though, that one day there will come a final judgment and ultimately Jesus will turn us over to our sinful ways for eternity. You'll say, well, then depart from me. I never knew you if you don't want to be, belong to me. For those who continually reject without repentance. I'm not saying those who occasionally stumble. No, he disciplines those he loves. But those who continually reject him and his will for our lives, then Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Another consequence, a loss of God's provision and protection. Verse 7, Paul writes, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject human being, but God, the very one who gives you his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We are God containers. Where we go, he goes, because he lives in us. The Spirit of God lives within us. But even though the Spirit of God will never leave us or depart from us any longer in the, in the New Testament, New Covenant era, 
we can still grieve or quench the Holy Spirit and kind of put him in the closet of our lives, if you will. We don't want you to be here tonight. We're going to do our own thing tonight. You're down there, you know. We could quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, and then we will lose his power, his effectiveness, his fruit flowing through us. His, our sin will block his flow. And, uh, for example, our, we may not notice a difference, but our loved ones will. They will reap the consequences of our sin. Rather than being filled with the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, we'll extend an irritated, joyless version of ourselves to our loved ones because we're not filled with His Spirit. God's commands are meant to provide and protect those whom He loves. Even as we'd protect our little children if if they found a couple screwdrivers on the countertop and they started running around the backyard or in the house playing cops and robbers or playing whatever with screwdrivers. If we see it, we are going to constrain their fun because we don't love them. We want them to be miserable, come and do the dishes. No, we want them to play, but we'd remove the screwdrivers out of their hands because we love them. And that's what God, our Heavenly Father, does with us. Second thing he said, and this is a much shorter point, if you're going to continue to grow in your sanctification, you've got to love each other more and more. Not that they weren't loving each other. In verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. Continue to grow in your love. Or you remain stagnant. If you're riding a bike uphill, stop pedaling. You're not going to remain there. You're going to go backwards. Continue to love more and more sacrificially. Megan Phelps Roper was raised in the Topeka-based Westboro Baptist Church. And when she was five years old, they dragged her out on the streets to picket. And they picketed funerals of American soldiers. They celebrated natural disasters, um, saying it was a judgment from God on the sinfulness of humanity. But then in 2012... After picketing for seven years of her young life, she began to change her heart and mind thanks to Twitter because she would engage people on Twitter and this is what she wrote. She said, people I'd sparred with on Twitter would come out to the picket line to see me when I protested, protested in their city. They engaged me with questions, kindness, and even humor and we started to see each other as human beings and it changed the way we spoke to one another. It took time, but eventually these conversations planted seeds of doubt in my life. And then she eventually left Westboro Baptist as a young adult. And when she did so, her family, her friends, her pastors promptly cut her off all communication and shunned her. And she goes on and says, A life of pointing out people's sin will not take us where we want to go. We have to talk and listen to people we disagree with. And I will always be inspired to do so because of the people I encountered on Twitter. Apparent enemies who became my beloved friends. And they approached me as a human being and that was more transformative than two full decades of outrage, disdain, violence, and retaliation. 
Paul says, love more and more. And this is what will conquer all sin. Not your arguments, not your apologetic you know, strategies, not your this and that, but it's your love which will conquer and win people to Christ. And, and he, what does love look like? Well, love looks like love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It is not self-seeking. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes for the best in others. That's what love looks like. You might be thinking, well, I love. I mean, I, I love my family. I mean, I follow my kid to Timbuktu to watch him play soccer, or I go to all the concerts I never miss. I love my family and my grandkids. And you know what Jesus would say? He said, that's good. You ought to, but it's not enough. Matthew 5, 46, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even pagans do that. He said, no, no, no. This is what love looks like. Love your enemies. Pray for Love those who persecute you and pray for them. So my question to us would be, do we demonstrate love to those who disagree with us and oppose us? Do we demonstrate love in our actions uh, to those who are difficult to be around, who annoy us? Do we demonstrate love to those who ignore us and reject us? Do we demonstrate love to those who we deem as undeserving? Or do we just follow the worldly pattern and retaliate in word and deed and attitude like, like I often do, find myself wanting to do? Verse 9, you are, lo- you are loving others, that's good, but yet, in verse 10, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, love more and more. So how are we to keep growing in our sanctification? According to Paul, he said, avoid sexual immorality in this rampant sexual culture that you live in, that you come from, that you're raised in. Be, be counter-cultural and revolutionary when it comes to this matter. Secondly, love each other in a counter-cultural way as well. Anyone can love your friends and family members. You know, Hitler loved his family members. But love those who are your enemies even. And then thirdly, love, uh, lead a quiet life, mind your own business and work hard. We're going to look at this next week um, as uh, in verse 10 through 12, he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, do this more and more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now that sounds counterintuitive. If we're to love people sacrificially, don't we have to go to them rather than mind our own business and be quiet and just work on your own? It sounds counterintuitive. We're going to look at what Paul meant by that next week as we consider their attitude about Jesus' second coming, which they're fixated on. And so we'll reserve that for next week, all right? Stay tuned. Just want to end with this. How is it possible to remain pure and live among difficult people and love them more and more in our self-centered, sexual-focused, um, saturated world? A man was asked um, 
a young man asked an older gentleman who was really, really rich um, how he made all his money and wealth. And the old guy put his fingers in his worsted wool vest and he said, well, son, it's like this. In 1932, during the depth of the Great Depression, I was down to my last nickel. And I invested in, a sh in an apple, and I spent the entire day polishing this apple. And at the end of the day, I sold the apple for a dime. And the next morning, I invested that 10 cents into two apples. And I spent the entire day polishing them, and I sold it at 5 p.m. for 20 cents. I continued this system for a month, and by the end of which, I accumulated a fortune of $3.50. And then my wife's father died and left us $10 million. <laughs> what I mean by that, verse 8, anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. God gives us all that we need for spiritual wealth and success, if you will. The Holy Spirit. He's not a $3.50 Holy Spirit. He is eternally there for us and, and with his resources. We become pure and sanctified and we become loving not through imitation. I got to be more like the Apostle Paul. I got to be more like so-and-so. I got to be more like Jesus. We will fail and fall on our face time and time again. We don't do so by isolation, by removing ourselves from the sinful pagan world and, and settling into our holy huddle. But we do so by inhabitation and the impartation of the Holy Spirit, God's gifts to us. Like an ocean fish who lives its entire life in, in salt water, so salty that we can't drink it as humans without getting really sick. But the same fish is caught, and when it's caught and prepared by one of us, then we will put salt on it. The same God that can take a fish and keep it in an environment of salt its entire life and yet not be affected by the salt can keep us pure in an impure world as we rely on his Holy Spirit within us. So when Jesus died and when he rose again, he then soon afterwards imparted his Holy Spirit to those who believed. If you are a Christian, you have literally Jesus living within you by his spirit. You have God living within you by his spirit. We're instructed not to quench his spirit or, or um, what's the other word? Quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. We're called to submit and surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, here I am, Lord. I wake up today. I want to serve you. I want to be faithful. And I need you to make me more and more like Jesus today. Amen. Now, if, uh, in conclusion, this is, could be a sensitive issue for people watching online or here. It could be like, man, this is so radical. Well, it, it is radical. It's countercultural, but it's biblical. And Jesus only loves us. He wants us, um, he wants us to thrive for his glory. Um, it, but there, it's God, we, we serve a God who, whose mercies are new every morning as well. You know, when we fall on our face, you know, he forgives us 70 times 7 eternally when we come to him with a repentant heart and ask him to change us. Rather than continually live in sin, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, and, and we could do that, oh, God's going to forgive me, I belong to him. 
you know, if that's how you're living, then I'm not sure you are a child of God, if that's our attitude. If it's continual, continual without repentance. But if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, even this morning, that's a good thing. Because he's trying to warn us, to save us. Now, condemnation, on the other hand, is a bad thing. Satan does that. And he says, you don't measure up. You just grovel in the dirt. You don't measure up to God. You're no good. You know, that's Satan's voice of condemnation. And it's easily confused with conviction. A conviction that causes us to fall on our face before God and thank him for his forgiveness. He's always willing to do so. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this church that believes in God's word and believes in your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you never do abandon us, but you are a faithful God who continues to draw us closer to yourself and um, discipline us at times uh, so that we become more and more like Jesus until one day we're glorified in your presence. And so I pray, God, that no one leave this place feeling condemned, but they feel freedom because they've once again come to you with a heart of repentance. Thank you for your forgiveness and uh, give us the power of your spirit to live according to our call. Amen.